Tour de France is just around the corner, and we here at Velo News again are about to drop our annual 2020 Tour de France guide. That is the companion to help you follow along with the race. Uh, as always, we have in-depth profiles of all 22 teams in the race, plus really great analysis of the 21 stages, including hot takes from Jens Voigt on whether each stage is good for GC riders, breakaways, or sprint riders. We have a ton of excellent reporting on feature topics, including a great piece that examines La Course, that is the Women's Tour de France race, and explores the potential for a women's Tour de France. ASO have been planning a large women's stage race, and we talked to prominent female riders about what they would like to see in a women's stage race in France. So all that, plus the information you have come to expect from the annual Tour de France guide that is detailed analysis, the contenders, the teams, the stages, everything you need to follow along with the race. So get yours today at velopress.com. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a busy, busy Monday morning. The world of bike racing has completely exploded with so many races on the calendar. We had Strada Bianca over the weekend, and I'm looking at this calendar just for this week alone and this whole compressed racing schedule thing is boggling my mind. We have the Tour of Poland. We have uh, tours that I can't even pronounce. We have the Dauphiné getting ready to start. We have races going on all over Europe. Um, and it's just going to be a... We got Milano-Torino. That's a great race. We got Milan, Milano-San Remo coming up this weekend. Um, just a mix of French races, Italian races, stuff going on in Poland. I, bike racing has started up and it is a dizzying array of bike racing as the entire schedule seems to be squished into these um, three months. We are going to help you parse um, all the news and information from these races on the site. So definitely stay tuned to velonews.com. But man, there's a lot of bike racing going on. And we uh, have a great episode this week. We're going to talk about the bike races that went on this past weekend, most notably Strada Bianca and the Vuelta Burgos, which finished up. Great storylines coming out of each one. We had reporters at both of these races. And then we're going to um, finish off what we started last week and do a stage-by-stage analysis of the Tour de France stages. That stage is 11 to 21. We're going to get granular, nerdy, um, really fine-tune our picks for these stages. Who's going to win GC Day, Breakaway Day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Second half of the show... We have an interview with Leah Thomas. Leah finished third place at Strada Bianca. She had a great race. I think it may be the best American finish at that race ever. And we're going to link up with her. She's been training uh, in Northern California over the la- these last few weeks to get ready for the racing season. And she is flying. So really psyched for that um, result. And we're going to link up with Leah. But before we get to Leah... Let's hear from James Start and Andrew Hood. Andy was at Vuelta Burgos, which wrapped up this past weekend. And James, probably still cleaning dust out of his nostrils and ears from being at Strada Bianca, which looked like just a complete insane dust fest. Before we get to the dust fest, let's hear from you, Andy. You were at uh, Burgos, which wrapped up. And there, at this race, the storyline ended up being... Mr. Remco Evenepoel, the 20-year-old wonder, winning again in dramatic fashion, taking the overall. So, Hoodie, you're back from Burgos. 
Remco wins. It's the first big race back. I mean, what are your lasting thoughts and what are the lasting storylines from this race? Yeah, it was great to see bike racing again. That's the big takeaway from this weekend. I was trying, it was a great race. Burgos was a great race. Uh, I, I think my impressions coming out of the race this weekend, I was there all week. And I have to say a little more encouraging after I saw what happened at the, this week in Spain. I mean, granted, uh, a lot of times the Peloton and the entourage outnumber the number of fans on the side of the road because at this, uh, some of the routes along the Burgos uh, profile this year really went into what they call España Profunda, just like way out in the redneck hills of northern Spain. We'd rock in these little villages that were literally, there was probably 100 people standing around and then the whole Peloton was there. So there were almost more people from the race than from fans. But there were, you know, there were good fans at the start in Burgos on the first day. And they had all the measures, all these uh, protocols and safety measures in place. They had, you know, fencing. They were controlling the number of fans going into the main plaza there for the first stage, requiring uh, hand sanitizing. They were counting the number of people going in there. They have face mask requirements for everyone. Uh, they, of course, they had all the uh, protocols they rolled out for the teams. And the big takeaway for me, I was pretty encouraged. Just kind of, you know, no one really knew what was gonna what we we're gonna see with the racing in, in this pandemic conditions. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised and optimistic at coming out of it. And speaking to riders and teams, everyone felt pretty confident with what they felt. Uh, the, the the race officials and the UCI and the teams that rolled out, they, all the riders and staff said they felt pretty safe in that bubble concept. I think it'll be something else when we go into a bigger race later. You know, later on, you know, when there are more crowds and more public and more media, uh, I think that's where we're going to run into some uh, headwinds there in terms of just managing that risk a little bit. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, racing was back on, and once everybody clicked in the pedals, man, it was just like back to uh, back to school, second nature. Yeah, you know, in watching it on TV, I, it was so awesome to have bike racing back on TV and to watch it and have some of these summit finishes and see the battles between Ivan Sosa and Remco and uh, Mika Landa on that final stage. Um, it, were there any moments, Hoodie, looking around that were sort of, I guess, like, hot moment or you know moments of concern with regard to coronavirus and social distancing and stuff like that i mean i know last pod we talked about how the start finish areas you know you saw masks the crowds were not close at all you know people were keeping their distances media was keeping its distances but as you looked around were there any moments where you were like ooh that kind of you know raises my antenna of potential um you know unsafe or un um uncontrolled situations yeah, I mean, when when they did come into the, you know the team uh, parking areas and even the finish line, there was nothing really that they had set up any different than just a normal edition of the race. So the fans could kind of walk around everywhere. Um, there was a little bit restrictions in terms of the media getting into the finish line area right there, you know, in that shoot where they come in. But it was really kind of just open season. Um, but again, there really were just so few people there that it really was, it was very easy to keep your social distance. Let's put it that way. It was usually just me in a parking lot talking to a sport director and nobody else around us. Uh, that could have been a different scenario. Um, like I said, larger, bigger race still, I think they'll have that. Obviously those areas control, especially in the team paddock concept they have at the tour de France. Now that's all going to be fenced off and no public, no fans. I mean, I guess the thing that kind of raised the red flag for me was, some of those uh, the cases we saw with Israel Cycling uh, Startup Nation and UAE, where both teams ended up pulling up pulling out riders because they had some secondary contact with another person uh, 
whom had tested COVID positive. And uh, some of the roadblocks we're running into was just the turnaround time for how long it's taking to get these COVID results back. Um, the actual test, I don't think, takes very long. I think the test might take, you know, who knows, an hour to do or even less than that probably. But the problem is they have to ship it off to these labs. I know at uh, the Tour de France, they will have a mobile lab on site so that when there's any sort of these kinds of cases come up, if someone has uh, symptoms, if there's a case what happened with uh, the UAE where these three riders have been in contact before the race with another rider who had tested COVID, even though they had tested negative, they had to be retested, but the results weren't coming back fast enough for the next day's start. So the team, kind of a precautionary measure, took the riders out of the race. So that issue will be dealt with, I think, uh, more efficiently at the Tour de France, just allowing you know a pretty fast turnaround so that if there's something flares up, they can do a test in that same morning, get the results back, and control that situation. Whereas here, you know, they'd ship the results off and it wouldn't come back till the next day, so they you know, they, they, they took the riders out of the race. So that was kind of, you know, some stumbling uh, out of the, out of the, out of the, uh, out of the starting shoot there a little bit in terms of this first race. But overall, I mean, everyone tested negative going in. They had two tests. Everyone, uh, then they did always follow up tests of these riders that had some secondary exposure. They'll, all those guys came back negative. And even the Israeli rider who tested positive, who kind of triggered this whole thing within the Israeli startup academy team, he later tested negative and two follow-up tests. So there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of ambiguity there in terms of this whole testing process as well. What I liked seeing was the diligence and the willingness to sacrifice made by these teams where it's like, okay, the guy is in contact with someone, they haven't tested positive, but they were in contact, so let's pull them out. You know, you saw that with UAE and with Israel startup. And as we've seen um, in American pro sports with, you know, MLB and NBA both trying to like have safe games go on like it really does come down to the riders willing to sacrifice themselves if they are the the players being willing to like sit themselves the teams being willing to sit players if there's anything going on you know in the nba there was this guy lou williams who like broke out of the bubble or he left the nba bubble and went to a gentleman's club and uh he's not playing whereas in major league baseball it was like the marlins you know like one guy got it then three guys got it then five guys got it and and you know, it just didn't seem like there was that same discipline. So I liked seeing the discipline on the end of these teams to say, hey, you know, he was in contact. But OK, he doesn't have symptoms, whatever. We're still going to yank him. I, I, I feel like that's the type of discipline that cycling is going to have to have if it wants to keep the thing from uh, from spreading. So that was what was We're definitely off to a better start than Major League Baseball, yeah. for one. Um, but I think, yeah, you know. It goes back to, you know, when this was breaking out, I mean, riders were saying, hey, we are so, you know, we're essentially so far out ahead when it comes to hygiene because we're always so far on the limit. I mean, rider, you know, baseball players can go out to the, to the pub afterwards. They don't have to, the, the, the level of extreme fitness is not at the same level as a Tour de France cyclist. And they, and they, you know, they, if they're a couple pounds overweight here and there, it's not the end of the day. Uh, riders are always right on the limit. So they have to be really, really paranoid about hygiene. And I think that's playing into our hands. That's helping us here. Um, thinking about Burgos, I, I got to say, man, I, I was so happy to see Fernando Gaviria win. I mean, same day, I think a couple of his team wins pulled out. He had COVID. I mean, he comes back and he wins. I thought that was just one of the great rides of the year. Love that. So James, moving on from that, I mean, you were at Strata Bianca and what were the, how did the COVID precautions there influence your ability to cover at this race? What was it like to be at a race in the COVID era for the first time since 
um, Perry Nice. And I, I mean, how different was it being at a race like that? Well, there were no fans at the start, uh, pretty much no fans at the finish, and there was no access to the riders. We were not able to get at all into the buses, um, and riders were not stopping and talking to journalists on the way to sign in or anything like that. So that was just, that was out. Once the race started, it was a race like a lot of others, and there was plenty of people. It was, there was people along the side of the road. I wouldn't say plenty, but there were people. Um, not wearing masks, but there were plenty. Um, but outstanding race. Outstanding race. I mean, really, I mean, Strade Bianchi is this, there are now six cycling monuments and, and, and Strade Bianchi is one of them. And it's amazing what they pack into less than 200 kilometers, but it's just so brutal. Those roads are so brutal and it's always an epic race. Usually it's the snow, the, the, the rain and that, that, that makes it here. It's the complete opposite. I mean, in the middle of an Italian summer, the roads have been dry for weeks on end. They were, the gravel was just you know really loose and brittle. Um, and I mean, it was, it, it, to say it was a race of attrition uh, is, is staying lightly. I mean, when you see guys like Peter Sagan and Philippe Gerbert coming off 65K from the finish or Philippe, you know, and I saw their faces. I mean, Gerbert was cooked. Um, and this guy knows how to prepare, right? This guy knows how to prepare at home for a race. And they were just baked, literally baked. And yet they all wanted to finish. I mean, Ali Philippe and about finished 65 kilometers, minutes down, 10, 20 minutes down, more and more. And they, they wanted to finish a respect for the race. They also know they have homework to do. They got to finish it, get the, the race miles in, but brutal racing. And then, you know, at the front, no surprises. I mean, you know, Wu Van Art has been pumping out big numbers on Strava and just, you know, has been motivated for this race for, for weeks on end. Nothing was getting in his right way. When I saw him, you know, well, he was in the lead group and he started seeing push the pace he was just, just clear he was going to win um and it was just you know it was an epic epic race and an epic uh uh you know uh, you know i mean who could not be happy for van art and he finished twice he's been here three times finished twice on on the podium twice third with that one, you know, that first ride you know where he fell off his bike literally um he, so he's given so much to this race and that they able to come back and win it under these conditions just tremendous I was, I was obvious, you know, I was psyched to see Wout van Aert win it as well. I was pretty impressed to see the racing intellect that he displayed. I mean, he was obviously so strong and it was his pressure that helped break up the group with like 42 Ks to go. But then, you know, he kept the group together when Betiol made that big attack with 18 Ks to go. And I was like, well, I guess he, he could have tried to join Betiol, but instead he just let he, him out there. He let him out there, then brought it back together waited for that climb where we always saw Fabian Cancellara go, that final steep climb, and that's where he did it. And, you know, there were a couple moments there where the gap, you know, they had the overhead shot, and yeah. Van Aert has his gap, but the gap back to Schachman and Betiol is just five seconds, three seconds. I mean, it's just right there. It's this teeny tiny little gap, and Van Aert, it, he never seemed to look back. It looks like he like, just kept his head down, and kept after it and didn't start looking back until it was like five Ks to go, six Ks to go when the gra when the gap had then gone way out. Cause I got, you got to wonder if you look back and you see these guys and they're only three Ks behind you or three, three seconds behind you, you know, is the motivation to keep pushing that there? Or do you, do you re you know, rethink your tactics? So I was really happy to see what win in a strong and very smart way. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, I think everybody finished in the top 10 was outside of, you know, a couple, I mean, 
Greg, Greg, I think Ben, uh, Ben Arbermark finished what eighth. I mean, he was obviously frustrated not to, to, um, to finish on the podium, but you know, I mean, Brent Bogwalker getting seventh was best first top 10 ever, 36 year old American. Um, you know, Betfield had, you know, was raised his heart, hands, like, you know, at the, at the finish, he was so happy with his performance, even if he didn't win. Um, and thankful for it. Um, just a lot of, you know, obviously great performances. And I don't think anybody had regrets. I mean, it was just so brutal. If you didn't have it that day, you're just, you just didn't have it. I mean, it's just, and Van Art had it. Yeah. So uh, it was just, it, and it's just such a spectacular race. I mean, I was also pretty impressed to see, I mean, look, Annemiek van Vluten now is five for five in racing, but everybody had their eyes on her coming into this race. Everybody was watching her to see what she was going to do. It's conditions, you know, we've now seen her win in like cold, rainy conditions at the beginning of the season, in hotter conditions in the mid part of the season, and then just downright oven baking conditions now. So, you know, it's one thing to be strong and to win a lot of races, but to win in these different conditions, different road surfaces, everything. I mean, that's... It's quite impressive to see from her too. So I, I, you know, racing is back. Racing came back with a bang, with a dusty bang. I'm happy to have cycling back in my life. My family is not happy as they watch me sit on the couch, uh, stream the action instead of going out and doing nice things on a beautiful Saturday. Bam, bike racing's back. Feels good. Um, guys, let's get onto it. Let's um, Let's break down these tour stages. So we have stages 11 through 21, to get through and similar to what James and I did last week, we're going to go through these stages. We're going to provide our analysis. Are they sprint breakaway or GC day? Maybe pick some winners and then offer our takes on how we see the stages coming down. So if you remember when we last left off uh, after stage 10, that was the stage that connected two islands on France's Western coast. And then we had a nice rest day. And now coming out of it into stage 11, James, I'm going to need you to pr- uh, pronounce some of these city yeah. names for me because woo, a lot of, lot of accents and weird symbols going on here. Yeah, well, the first one, stage 11, goes from Châtelaillon Plage, which means beach, Châtelaillon Plage, to Poitiers. Uh, very flat stage. I mean, this is obviously a sprinter stage. There's just no way around that. Um, and that's what it's going to be. They don't have a ton of stages this year in the tour, so they're not going to let this one go by. Any memories of being in either of these cities from Tour de France routes of the past? Well, you know, Poitiers, we used to come to a lot because that was where, outside of Poitiers, is where they have this that sort of futuristic uh, uh, park called Futuroscope, oh, which man. ASO actually used to own. So we always had a stage here, start their time trial. Uh, it was where Lance Armstrong uh, you know, won the final time trial of his very first uh, tour. Um, so, you know, it, 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 and we've had, I mean, for 10 years we had stages there. And, um, you know, it's, it's a historic town um, as well. But uh, it's right in the, you know, the heart of, uh, of France and, you know, very, very typical French uh, countryside landscape. But really, it's a, it's a day for sprinters. Andy, who's your pick to win? Yeah, I agree with James. It's a sprinter day after coming out of the Pyrenees. Um, and uh, like, like uh, James said, not a whole bunch of opportunities for the sprinters in this Tour de France. So they'll be all over it. There'll be a breakaway attempt as through us. I think this there is some crosswind risk in this stage, maybe not quite as much as when it kind of gets out to a little bit, a little bit more of the heartland. It's kind of getting close to that area where they can have some 
pretty breezy uh, buffeting crosswind sometimes. Who's going to win? I mean, who knows? I mean, it's like we have to wait and see who has the legs, right? It's always seems like just one sprinter that emerges to be the fast man. And we have to wait really and see which teams bring sprinters. I mean, Gronavegan's not going. Uh, Michael Matthews is not going. A lot of teams are with this eight-man roster are just bringing uh, GC guys. So Caleb Ewan, a pill punchy finish kind of at the end there. It's perfect for Caleb. All right, we're picking Caleb. All right, on to stage 12. 217 and a half kilometers, big long day from Chauvigny to Saran. Did I pronounce those right? Chauvigny to Saran. Saran. There we go. And it, uh, the profile looks a little, it looks like a sprint day as well, but we have a Cat 3 and a Cat 2 coming inside the final 40K. The Cat 3 being the Col de Géant, and the two Cat 2, the Souk Called the Géant, the, the the climb of the uh, climb of the giants. That is not and, a giant uh, climb. That is a not giant oh, climb. A, but uh, I see this is a Peter Sagan day. You know, I mean, they're gonna they're gonna go to the front uh, to try to shake the sprinters. They only got about what they got about uh, from the top of the climb. They've got well, they got they that downhill, and from the bottom of the climb, they got seventeen k. Um, you know, if they can shake shake a couple sprinters, they're gonna try for it. Peter Sagande, I like it. Yeah. Okay, on to stage 13 where things start to get a little more interesting. This is a punishing day. There are one, two, three, four, five, six categorized climbs, including two Cat 1s. We start with a Cat 1. We finish with the Cat 1. And then there's the summit finish to Puy Marie, which isn't itself a killer if five uh kilometers at 8.1 that's pretty steep it's it's a killer climb man. yeah it's not not that hard but it's in these uh it's in the massive central uh the roads are are kind of rugged it can often be a lot of winds uh they've been going up and down all day real leg breakers it's going to be a brutal finish brutal i think it's the first time we've actually finished on the summit but it's a it's a it's a it's, it's going to be a brutal finish and it's going to be climbers day i mean Anybody, anybody who wants to win the race has to be right at the front here. Who's your pick, Andy? Thomas DeGent. This <laughs> is a Thomas yeah. DeGent kind of day for me because he likes – Thomas DeGent likes a kind of big, hard climb to start a stage off like this. I think it's obviously terrain for a breakaway. I think it's one of those days that the GC guys will let a break go away of riders who are not, are not threatening on the GC side, obviously. And I think there will be a pretty big group trying to get away and try to win this stage. Uh, that'd be a huge battle behind in the GC group if a brick brick does get away. Um, but it's going to be a very, very hard stage. Um, as James said, the Massive Central is just up and down, left and right, narrow roads, rough roads, can be very hot and stinky in there sometimes. Also can be very windy. And if the weather turns sour, uh, it, you know, it can be some brutal racing conditions. You know, now we're racing into September. You know, it's not July anymore, so... That could be the wild card of this tour. You know, we just don't know what the weather is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it has all it has all to make this to be a brutal stage. I like it. Okay, on to stage fourteen from Clermont-Ferrand to Lyon. Clermont-Ferrand, Lyon. Uh, I say this is a Thomas against stage. Just you know, I mean, he, he can go, you know, crazy on these climbs and still hold it off. We have one, two, three. Four or five categorized climbs. Only one of them is sizable. That is the Cat 2 
Col de Béal, which comes uh, 70K or so into this 196K stage. So it is early in the stage, perfect launch pad for an early breakaway. What stands out to me about this stage is, one, it comes right before a big, big GC day, which may impact the way that the uh, race leaders choose to race. And then, two, there are these steep little cat fours that come in succession right before the finish line, which, if the sprinters aren't paying attention to, they could get shed off the back. But if they are paying attention, or if they're versatile sprinters, they might be able to hold on. How do we see this one finishing up? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think as a total transition day, what we call transition day, so that's why I said Thomas again, the day before is very hard. The day after, it's very hard. I don't know what kind of legs the sprinters are going to have, um, but I think that it's a pretty hard stage uh, for them outside of, a, you know, a more versatile sprinter like a Sagan uh, to keep together. Um, I see a break going away here. And nobody rides breaks better than the Gantt, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, I think this is breakaway day. What stands out to me about this day and the day before is just how hard the, the the topography is and how hard how long these stages are. Both of them are almost 200 k's going in. You know, this is the end of week two, going into the final, really decisive week of the tour. I don't think uh, you know the, we'll see a few of the GC guys maybe lose time and lose their options in this first two weeks of racing. But the tour is going to be decided in this third week coming up, where we're about to talk about. But these two days are just going to leave everyone just on their limit. It's going to be all about who can recover, who can get through the first two weeks of this tour. This will almost be like a finish line, and the new tour will start the next day. So stage 15, GC battle roars back to life in a big way from uh, 174.4 kilometers from Lyon to Grand Colombier. It is a summit finish. It is a day that has three categorized climbs packed into the final 70K. So they hit the Monte de... They hit two big cat ones, then the descent, and then the big summit finish to Grand Colombier. What I'm excited about this stage is we get a little taste of this stage coming up at the Tour de l'Ain this week at 2.1 race because stage yeah. three finishes with the same succession of climbs with the... Uh, Monte de la Sal de Fromentel, Col de la Biche, and then Colombier. Yeah, and uh, the, the way they're going up the Colombier, I think the last time they did it was like a Tour de l'Avenir in the 70s. It's, it's, a, it's not your typical climb. And, I mean, guys had to walk up it. It's, it's a, I mean, this is, I remember uh, Ivo Maggio once told me, Ivo Maggio's, Mark Maggio's brother, one of the, the DSs of Pupama, um, you know, long-time professional. I once asked him years ago, so what's the hardest climb you, you know? And he said, you know, it's one we don't go up that often, but it's it's the Grand Colombier. And we've been going up more often in the last five, six years. But this is not only a hard climb on any given day. There's a whole, whole array of ways to go up it, but we're going up the hardest way. Do we see this stage deciding the Tour de France? Is this, could this, could stage 15 be the day where you're like, uh, he who wins today is winning the winning the whole thing well i I think that uh if there is a rider who is superior to the rest of the field it will become very apparent on this climb i think Uh, as james described this is a very hard climb there's not going to be not really hiding uh behind teammates i think it's going to be shredded down to the gc favorites pretty quick on the final climb if not before there's other you know those other two cat ones are going to trim everything down but you know you'll you'll get to the base of the Grand Colombier with the, uh, you know uh, the the main GC guys with a couple of Domex Deeks. You know we'll see the Seps there and kind of the second tier riders helping out their captains, and 
you know, if there is that rider that's just head and shoulders above everyone else, I think it, this is the terrain where, you know, they might not win the race, but they'll become very apparent who is this, the guy to beat. Now, having said that, it also could be uh, with so much racing ahead, uh, lying ahead in this final week, riders might be, you know, saving their matches, you know, marking their rivals, racing a little bit conservative. But this has a setting to be one of those days where if someone's feeling just great and they're like, you know, I'm going to take control of the race, this is a pretty good opportunity to do that. Who wins? Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're, if you're going to win the race, you're going to have to be at the front here. I'm gonna. I'll pick the winner today. I say Nairo Quintana wins this stage. Yeah, I'm gonna say Quintana. Okay, on to stage 16. Another challenging day in the Alps. It doesn't look like a completely decisive day, but a day in which some people could lose the tour. So we go from La Tour du Pin, 163.8 kilometers to Villard de Lan, with the um, very difficult Cat One ascent coming like 15k from the finish. So it's 6.9 kilometers at 8.9%. That's Monte de Saint-Nizaire du Montchereau. And I think that people could get, like, contenders could get dropped on this climb. I don't know if you're going to win the tour on this stage, but again, it seems almost like a trap day. Like, this is a day where some contenders might get caught out. Yeah, this is uh, Villard de Long. We've gone up it, I think, uh, one year. I think when uh, Greg LeMond won the tour, we went up it. It's... um. It's a moderate climb uh, just outside of Grenoble. It, it, unless a guy's having trouble, it's not going to make or break the race. Um, and you can easily see uh, this could also be, honestly, uh, you know, another day for Dick Enter, transition guy, because we come out of some really hard days, and we're going to have another hard day the following day. Uh, these climbs, the Cat 2, cat, what is it, cat, two Cat 2 climbs, and this Cat, cat 1, um, you know, there's a whole lot of guys that, that can see this as a stage for them. I think I think a break's going to get away, and you may have some pride, some some surprise in the top ten. But um, other than that, I think the, the guys that are controlling the GC are going to be looking at each other and controlling it. Yeah, I think I think it's a breakaway day as well. I think you could see. I agree with you, Fred, that anybody kind of hanging on by the skin of their teeth, they're going to get spit out the back because these these stages, you know, it's getting a little bit shorter distance. They'll be raced aggressively and fast, especially if a team like, say, uh, Ineos, you know, has the jersey already. You know, they're the best defense is often just, you know, ride everyone into the ground. So if they have numbers, they'll make this a hard stage. Might not be decisive, but it'll be a grinder. And anybody that's not really on just right on top of their form could lose out. And it's a big leg softener for the next day, stage 17, Grenoble to Maribel, which is the final summit road stage of this year's Tour de France. And it's your classic long grinder climbs, the type where people sort of get just smashed by the length and the challenge of the climb. So it's 167.9 Ks, but in the back half, they go up the Col de la Madeleine, um, 17 Ks at 8.4%, which is, that's a very hard climb. And they descend off of that and then go right into the summit finish to Maribel, which is 21.5 Ks at 7.8%. So it's lo- two long grinder climbs that, you know, 7.8%, that's that's steep. Um, how do we see today playing out? Well, the, the, the main thing is that that climb to Maribel is not the standard climb to the ski station. It's a, it's a road we've never gone up before. It's uh, it's a very hard road. It's going to be 
Um, it's very narrow. I'm not even sure it's completely paved the whole way. It looks like it is, but um, we've never gone up, and that's that's going to be that could be you know that stage that that last stage could could decide the race if somebody's hanging on like last year with Ali Philippe. You know, I mean, he cracked only on the last big huge mountain day, um, and this is that kind of day. Yeah, I think what stands out to me is look at the altitude, mm. two thousand meters plus at Maribel. Uh, almost the same for the Madeleine. I mean, James and I, James has been up there before. I've been up there skiing, you know, and like James said, this is like basically a ski run. It's been paved over. So at the last, I think 5K of this is very, very steep. Uh, it's a service road. It's been paved over just for the tour for this specific stage. You know, altitude is going to be a factor. You know, who does that favor? You know, the one and only Egon Bernal. I think if, if Egon Bernal is going to win the tour, he's going to just shut the door on everybody on, on this stage. Right away from everybody, win the stage, secure the yellow jersey, and then they'll, they'll, he'll just turn uh, Chris Froome into a do- domestic on this stage. Like he did today, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, heading into stage 18, which, well, it is not a summit finish, is a very challenging day. Um, one, two, three, four, five climbs with the descent into La Roche sur Foron starts in Mary Bell. It is 167 Ks. And this stage reminded me a bit of the very challenging, I believe it was stage 15 in the Pyrenees last year when Thibaut Pino made his attack and dropped um, Bernal and looked like he was surging towards the yellow. And that it was, you know, these climbs were not long grinders. They were steep, but they just came in succession, one right after the other. And when you look at this profile, it's shark's teeth. It's just climb after climb after climb with the final climb and HC, uh, the Plateau de Glieres, which we went up a few years ago with the dirt at the top um, falling not that far from the finish. How do we see today playing out? Hard to say. Um, Cormier Roselon is actually my favorite climb. I think it's the most beautiful climb in France, um, but it's not that hard. And uh, you, you could see a, certainly a breakaway could be getting away. Uh, the, the, that, that, uh, the Monte to the Plateau de, de Glieres is, is a spectacular climb. I think it was, uh, dirt um, at some point, um, but is it decisive? When I'm looking at when I look at the profiles here, I go, "This could be a breakaway day as well," um, because there's such a long run in after that. Um, could this uh, be a day where some GC contender who has fallen out of the top five or is like in that sort of seven, eight, nine, ten spot rolls the dice? Yes, absolutely. Could certainly be where guys, yeah, like you said, hovering around tenth. Gets out there, grabs five minutes, and all of a sudden, back up fifth or sixth. Because hmm. what you have when that sort of thing happens, you know, well, the, the guys that are in first, second, third, and fourth, they don't care. They're not going to chase that guy down. But then it's up to the, the guy who's in fifth place, and he's got you know his team, and these you know there's not a lot of riders on the teams, and who knows how many riders will be in the race at this point. So yeah, that's that's a very good point, Fred. Well, when you look at the stage, uh, two riders come to mind for me. Tade Pogacar and Primo Roglic. Nice. Uh, you can almost see those two guys linking up. You can imagine the scenario where maybe Roglic might not be, you know, might not be in the lead at this point, and he's going to just roll the dice, like you said. He's probably podium range, and you know, we see Roglic is the kind of guy who will, who will take risks, and he's a great descender. Won that downhill stage of the Tour a couple of years ago, and this is a very steep climb. The uh, that HC. That is one of the hardest climbs in the whole tour. It's far away from the finish. 
but it's a, it's kind of a ground where someone who just has great legs and someone willing to take a risk might just, you know, blow the race wide open. Probably not, probably not. Cause everyone be on their knees by this point, but just like last year at the Welta man, Pogacar, you know, pulled it out of the cat out of the hat and almost ran away with the whole race. Yeah. I mean, it's 6k at 11.2%. So anything you, anytime you have something that's that long at a sustained climb above 10%, I mean that like, that's kind of uh, tactics. Tactics go out the window, and everyone's just sort of going as hard as they can. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's our final GC climbing stage because we head to stage nineteen from Borgenbrest to Champagnol, one hundred and sixty point four k's. Kind of a lumpy stage, but probably a sprint day, um, as everyone saves their legs for the final time trial. Yeah, I think so. They haven't they haven't had any opportunities here. I think been, there's going to be a lot of you know a lot of guys have been really working hard in the Gruppetto for a day like this, um, and I would be surprised if if it doesn't come down to to a, a sprint, at least of some of the stronger guys like Caleb and and uh, and Sagan. Yeah, we'll see who's left of the sprinters. Uh, you, know, you can probably expect a few of the sprinters who have dropped out. So, how many sprinter teams will be intact to chase down a breakaway? I think it's going to be a real tug of war. One of those stages where a break is going to go could be a pretty good sized group. A lot of teams still fighting for scraps in the tour. They want to win a stage. They want to get a jersey. They want to get something out of the tour. So I think, yeah, I don't think it's guaranteed. Uh, I don't think this is a guaranteed spread stage. We'll see. All right. The final decisive stage of this year's tour that's going to influence the GC stage 20. It's the one everyone's been waiting for individual time trial, 36.1 kilometers to La Planche de Belfield, the climb that has been oh so famous in the last 10 years or so. But the real big question when I look at this profile is, okay, we finish up La Planche de Belfield. It is a steep climb, 6Ks, 8.5%. But there's like 27, almost 30 kilometers of flat rolling terrain before you get to the bottom of the climb. Um, I mean, the big question I think everyone is asking is like, are we going to see bike changes? Yeah, to, so mostly teams I've talked to said they will be doing bike changes on this stage. Uh, there's enough rolling flat um, to where it's worth it because bike change, good bike change, you won't lose much time at all. And bad bike change though you might lose a bad time. bike change. yeah yeah you don't want to do the old uh dennis minshoff bike change um so you're right so i think uh this this will i think this will more than decide the race i think this will kind of settle the podium i think the race will have been decided by the time we get to this stage like in terms of the yellow jersey i think we could see some reshuffling um in the podium but you know who knows i mean everyone's talking about oh you know a guy like dumoulin could take back uh, you know, a minute, two minutes. I'm like, hmm, I'm not so sure because the way the stage is, you know, maybe against a Naira, yeah, but uh, some of the other guys, like, uh, they're not going to cede that much time to a specialist. Uh, well, don't forget, this is this is uh, three weeks into racing. Uh, it's not a, t- a time trialer is at a disadvantage here. I mean, it's about the climbers often pop out really great time trials here because why? They're fresh. They haven't dug as deep on the climbs. So I think Quintana or Bernal, you know, those guys can get around TTs adequately, especially after three weeks of racing. What do you guys think about the whole time trial setup this year? Only one TT. It's a, you know, summit finish TT. Um, what are your thoughts on how that's going to, you know, how, what that means for this year's race? Well, I yeah. think it's, go ahead, Andy. 
Well, I, I, I was just going to say, I never thought I'd say this, but man, I miss a big old long flat time trial. You know, everyone used to say, well, oh, it just sucks the life out of the tour, the big old flat long time trial. But actually, uh, after having these uh, these kind of uh, welter style races, I mean, yeah, sure, it's all tightened up and, you know, all the suspense is supposedly built into it. But it also kind of creates this almost negative style of racing because guys are cautious. They're marking each other's wheels. The differences are small. No one wants to make a, an error that's going to cost them the race. Whereas if you do have a time trial, it does force the other riders who have lost time to try to attack. So I'll be interested to see. I think in next year's tour, especially with uh, some different riders coming into the scene, you know, if Froome's coming back, you know, maybe trying to go for that fifth win. If he doesn't get it this year, you know, Froome's going to be on a new team next year. You know, the tour likes to set up that good narrative. They might throw in a big time trial. They might throw in uh, even a team time trial to kind of give the time trialist a little shout or, you know, give T- Dumoulin a better chance to win, win a tour, you know, um, and you have, if you have uh Bernal coming in and he might win three, four, five, six tours in a row. So you kind of want to make it interesting and maybe stick a big time trial back into the race. We'll see. Yeah. On to stage 21. It is uh ceremonial. It is held later in the day. It is also very prestigious to win. Uh, that is, of course, to the Champs-Élysées. Last year, Caleb Ewan won. The year before, it was Alexander Kristoff. Um, who do we pick? Who's our pick to win Stage 21? Everyone's like, ah, I've already gone home by this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just... It's just, uh, I'll, it's just... I'll, tell I'll tell you who. Bonifacio. A little Italian sprinter with uh, total uh, direct energy got third last year. I think there's going to be a lot of sprinters shelled. He's going to stay in this race because he's the sprinter for the team, and and uh, that's, he's their best chance for a stage win. So that's how you can win. All right, I'll go, if you're going outsiders, I'll take uh, Nitsolo. You know, he's he's reborn under uh, he's reborn under NTT had a pretty good season last year. He's never won a he's never won a big sprint like this before, but he's looking very strong. He wasn't great in Burgos, but he was. Uh, you know, he's he obviously going very well into the season's epic, but but going into this final stage like this, you know, it has to be said that the um, Champs-Élysées sprint is one of the most spectacular settings in all of sport. You know, we've all been to, you know, these big, uh, you know, stadium games. We've been to, you know, we've seen some Olympics, you know, we've seen uh, other sports. There's nothing that compares to the scene on the Champs-Élysées at the end of the Tour de France. And I think it's pretty cool. How they're doing it later in the evening, you know, it's the sunset, uh, the lights are on, the Arc de Triomphe, uh, the race comes in. And I, I'm a big fan of this kind of uh, show that comes in the first part of the stage. You know, you get you get to uh, have the riders relax a little bit, you know, do some goofy pictures, have some champagne, you know, really just cherish and relish, you know, that moment of what they've come through. I personally hate final day time trials and everyone's like oh but greg lamont won by eight seconds the best tour ever but yeah you still could have actually had the champs elise stage the next day and it still would have been the same result i like it i'm a big fan of these the what the tour the juror always ends with a time trial they bah give me the give me this give me this kind of a you know it also gives journalists a chance to write our stories you know because if it's like the last day and the race is decided it's no fun in the press room but now we have this whole day to kind of roll out the stories oh yeah go into paris Yeah. And uh, you know, then you get the nice yeah. spread. Everybody's happy. Hey, let me just tell you, the photographers—they gotta—they gotta do the same story. It doesn't matter. They can't—they can't produce their pictures before the finish, huh? 
It is a spectacular uh, sight. Were either of you guys there in 2013 for the uh, Centenary Tour? I mean, that was a big deal, and they lit up the Arc de Triomphe, and they broadcast this um, like video on it that made the Arc de Triomphe seem like it came to life. You know, the flyover. There were cast of millions there to check it out. It was it was really special. And that's you know that's going to be interesting to see this year. Is what does the Champs Elysees final day of the Tour de France look like under the age of COVID? I mean, is it just um, you know persona you know nobody there is it empty um if it if it has to be empty for the race to go on safely i think that's fine but you know yeah I, i'm with you guys i can't say enough about how beautiful it is there well that's well, it i mean james james is james lives there so he sees it every day yeah. so for him it's just like well, it's just a traffic jam down there <laughs> i'm so ready to get home it's not even funny and it's just i actually like the late afternoon finish because then you know then i could get home like for late dinner but yeah. now it's like it's, it's like well, it just, and you always think the Champs Elysees is going to be sort of a half day and easy day because you just go to the Champs, you don't have to worry about going to the start, and and it turns out to be one of the longest days. You got you got all the podiums and everything, and it just takes forever. But it is a spectacular finish at nighttime with the 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 you know the fireworks and or not the fireworks, but the light show and and, and everything. It's pretty wonderful. So twenty one stages. We finish on the Champs Elysees. And then the big question, drum roll, please. The overall winner of the Tour de France is James. Who's your pick? Uh, uh, right now, um, I would say uh, I say it's going to be Bernal, Quintana, and uh, Roglic. And the, o- the overall winner, the podium hoodie is. Yeah, I mean, just based on what we've seen so far, I, I almost have to agree with uh, James right there. I mean, you know, we can change the order a little bit, but those, you know, from what we well, we actually haven't seen too much of Roglic yet. Um, but Bernal, obviously, flying out of the gate uh, on the kind of comeback here in the revised calendar. Uh, Quintana was looking strong. I'm kind of anxious to see how he looks. Um, you know, so I think it's going to be an Ineos and a Jumbo and maybe Nairo. I like it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say... Um, Roglic, Quintana, Bernal, Ineos finally loses the Tour de France. I know, wishful thinking. I don't think it's going to happen. Well, guys, I really appreciate you coming on the pod today, breaking down the Tour de France route. Next week, our Tour de France preview is going to continue as we take a deep dive into the list of contenders. We're going to name our top 10 list of contenders. We're going to go through each guy, discuss the storylines around each guy, strengths, weaknesses, how they fit into this year's tour route, etc. So Tour de France previewing, continuing on the Vela News podcast. Coming up, we have American Leah Thomas talking about her amazing ride at Strada Bianca. Our guest on the podcast this week is American Leah Thomas. Leah rides for the Equipe Paul Ka team. She lives in Northern California, and she had an amazing, eye-popping ride at Strada Bianca this weekend, finishing third place. I believe it's the best finish by an American at the race. Leah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Before we get into our very difficult questions, I mean, give us a rundown of your day at Strada Bianca. How did the race go for you? Um, hi there. It's great to be here. Um, Strada Bianchi was an amazing race. Obviously, there was a lot of uncertainty um, going into it, um, especially coming from the U.S. It was kind of a big question mark in my mind what was going to happen. Um, 
you know, I, I get to Europe, which was an adventure in and of itself. And um, I'm on the start line and I literally haven't ridden in a Peloton. I really haven't even ridden with more than one other person in months. And I was a little, I mean, a little apprehensive and also extremely excited to, to start this race. So the special part about Strata is that the terrain kind of whittles out a lot of riders and halfway through the race, you generally have a pretty reduced peloton. So um, the race was hard, it was incredibly hot and halfway through the race or so, Ellen Van Dyke launched an attack and every major team was represented. represented. And so I was the one who bridged over from um, our team. And I started by playing that break a little conservatively. I wasn't sure it was going to stick. Um, and we weren't really getting any information from the motos. Um, in terms of time gaps. So when we hit the next gravel sector, I thought I would test my legs and um, see how the other um, cyclist responded. And it became pretty apparent that I was the strongest climber in the break at that time. So um, I decided to go for it and um, put in a pretty big attack. And unfortunately, that's where I dropped my chain and um, then fell off my bike and dropped my chain again and lost quite a bit of time. Um, but was able to hold on for third. So I'm really um, proud of that race and how I raced it. And I'm also really happy to be able to bring home this result for um, our team and, and for Paul Ka. They did an amazing job coming on um, as a sponsor in such a time of uncertainty. And I'm incredibly grateful that they did so. And it's really great to start off the season with such a good result. Yeah, it was so cool to watch you, um, Leah. And I'm just wondering, with Strata being such a sort of race of attrition, um, did you, or should I say, what was the plan um, for your team? And did you uh, stick with the plan or does the plan um, sort of, um, <laughs> does, does nothing go according to plan at a race like that? Um, something can definitely always happen in that race. The plan, we generally went in with a loose plan of how we wanted to approach the race and kind of had broken it up into sections. And really the goal was to get through with as many riders as possible through the first half of that race. And all five of us were there after sector five, which is the really long gravel section. And we know that with numbers comes opportunity. And so um, when Alan launched that attack, it gives me free reign to go in that break because we have other other just as strong riders in the peloton in case that break comes back. So um, the plan obviously changed. It wasn't like, oh, getting a break, Leia, halfway through the race. Um, but I knew it went with the overall theme of what we were trying to accomplish that day. Leah, we got to drill down into this dropped chain attack. Um, the drop the chain. It's a tense <laughs> few moments. Take us through the emotion and the mentality that you remember of those intense few moments. And how did you not just like karate chop your bike into the forest? How did you stay calm in that moment knowing that like, oh my God, I just dropped my chain at the most, you know, at a very important part of the race. Totally. So I had just put in this, this major attack and I was feeling really strong and knew this was my moment to ride away. And I had no idea what was happening behind me at the time. I didn't know where Anamique was, that she was bridging or any of this. So for me, it was this moment of, this is my opportunity to make this race. And when I dropped my chain, I looked down and it wasn't just like dropped. It was like stuck behind the 
the chain catcher kind of thing. And you're just like, okay, I definitely have to get off my bike for this. And one of, I think one of my strengths is being able to handle that pressure and just calmly deal with whatever comes. Um, my very first world championship time trial on the start ramp, I dropped my chain and I got off my bike and I'm putting my chain back on. And the um, UCI official was freaking out because I had put it in my little chain ring. I hadn't moved it over to the big chain ring. And he was like gesturing like crazily. And I said, no, it's okay. I'll just put it on. When I roll down the ramp, I'll upshift. I don't have to worry about it. And it worked out great. And so I kind of approached this with the same mentality. Like I knew that if I panicked, it would just take more time to get on my bike. And so I also knew I had a big gap and I, my, my plan was I would get my chain back on and I would be with Carol Ann and then there'd be two of us and that's not a bad scenario that far out from the finish and, and things would be great. So um, it worked out <laughs> until I got pushed and fell over again and dropped my chain. But what's funny about that is when I got that chain back on, all of a sudden the guy didn't want to push me anymore. And I remember turning to him, I'm like, why aren't you pushing me? Because at this point I'm like tired and I'm on this gravel climb and I'm just like, you already pushed me and messed me up. Now my wheel is straight, like, please push me again and give me a hand here. Um, so it was like, I don't know. I feel like, yes, it's a race moment. And yes, it's like a very important race moment, but you have to take a, a second to just kind of laugh in the middle of the race and just realize like this crazy stuff is happening and then recollect yourself and then continue forward the best way you can. Thanks for sharing that with us. Cause what we saw was um, a little confusing as to um, why he didn't push you that second time. He just sort of <laughs> stood aside. Um, anyway, Leah, I'm curious about your sort of last five, six months. You and I talked, I don't know when it was, I think late in the spring maybe, and you'd sort of just gotten back to California and things were totally weird. Um, and now here we are and it's August and you've just had an awesome performance at a race. I'm wondering why, uh, how and why I th you were able to get so strong and I guess mentally fit to come into the season right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, maybe the last just couple months, um, your training and your focus and, um, and yeah, just kind of what you were up to in California in the couple months preceding um, this weekend? Absolutely. Um, I know a fair number of riders kind of struggled maybe a little bit with the um, uncertainty with the coronavirus situation in terms of racing. Uh, but as soon as I knew that the racing was canceled, I kind of viewed it as an opportunity to work on my weaknesses. And I really used that time to, to choose areas where I felt I needed to improve. And um, because we weren't traveling and because I was in the same place all the time, I could really focus on those things while and doing it in a way that was, I found fun and rewarding. So for me, going out on a really long adventure style like ride, maybe with some gravel and some crazy hills and, you know, adventuring all over the place uh, is a really fun way for me to build a really strong base. And so um, doing things like that and then also switching up my intervals, um, I think kept me mentally motivated and also gave me. Um, the power necessary to do well in a race like Strata. You're obviously super fit coming into this, Leo. We saw that you set the QOM of Old La Honda Climb, which is a popular climb 
um, in the Bay Area there. And this is a climb where, you know, like Kate Courtney's riding it and a bunch of other pros. Katie Hall is riding it, some really top-level riders. Um, talk to us about setting the QOM up that um, – what did it feel like? And was that a benchmark then that you knew pointed to, you know, you being pretty fit coming into the season? Absolutely. So uh, the I wasn't planning on going for the QOM. One of my friends was like, I think you should try this. I think you might be able to get a good time. And I remember I think I did it on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And that Saturday beforehand, I did like two sets of some intervals on the climb just to kind of get a feel for where I was at. And, and I, I did it and I didn't feel tired at all. And I was like, you know what, I think maybe maybe this is possible. And I went into it thinking that I was going to aim for a 16 minute oval Honda. And as I was going up the climb, I was like, I can go faster. I can go faster. And then by the end I finished at 1503, I think, or something like that. Um, and I think that it, it really cemented for me that I am riding really well right now and that I am capable of more than I thought. And so it gave me a lot of confidence going into this race that, you know, if I can do that well on such a contested climb, like I can do well in, in this kind of races as well. Yeah, congrats on that. And just to be clear, was that the day before you left for Europe? That you Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was my send off. Yeah, hopefully it made the the plane journey not quite as stressful. <laughs> exactly. So, um, where are you now, and what are you doing um, until your next race? Which tell us what that is too. Sure, um, I will be racing again at Clue on the twenty fifth. And so I get to have some downtime just here in Girona and focus on, on training. Um, it's a pretty crazy calendar that gets started after Plue. So, you know, you go Plue, you go right into the course, and then you have the Giro, and then you have Worlds, and then you just start all your classics after the Ardennes, you know? It just is nonstop. So I'm trying to use this to finish off my last block of training, um, really focus on preparing for Worlds, because it's the last opportunity to do so, and then also just be here and try to soak up as much calm and consistency as I can, because pretty soon it's all just going to go crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, a big focus of uh, cycling fans and the cycling press over the last few weeks in the return to racing has been the COVID-19 protocols and whether or not people should even be racing their bikes. And we've uh, interviewed a few riders and journalists who have been to the races and asked them what it's like to be um, you know, operating under these protocols. And the big question is like, do you feel safe? You know, um, when you're at a race like Strada Bianco, when you're having to take tests, you know, interacting with teammates and fans on the side of the road, et cetera, like, are there, you know, do you feel safe? And are there elements that uh, of the return to racing where you have not felt particularly great or particularly safe? Sure. I think that the protocols set up have a really good intent. I think that getting tested six days out before you join your team is important. I think being tested again before you join the Peloton is important. I think it, it negates any false test results. Um, but the thing that you just cannot avoid is the fact that you never have a bubble, right? You're interacting with hotel staff. You're in, the Swannies are interacting with people in the grocery store. You're flying places. You're traveling. Um, 
And so you can be really as safe as can be, but it's not going to eliminate all the risks. I feel like racing in a place like Italy, where you only have roughly 250 cases a day in the whole entire country, is a pretty safe place to be. The likelihood you come across it is is much slimmer than if you were, for example, somewhere in the United States. Um, so I felt really comfortable in Italy. Um, I do think it's interesting being in an international peloton and being on a team with international riders and and seeing the different perspectives that people have adopted based on what their country's experience has been. So people who haven't had um, a lot of interaction with coronavirus are kind of haven't gone through the same adjustments that a lot of us have made um, coming from countries that have dealt a lot with with high numbers of cases. So as an American, you've been like, I don't need to wear a mask. Here's my gun. <laughs> Maybe other parts of my country, but not where I'm from. Um, I'm curious, too, one of the things um, when we spoke, I don't know when it was, but, um, you know, when you left Girona so abruptly last spring and you were so bummed because you'd really sort of been looking to it as a new home, a new home base. Um, and now here we are, you know, six months later and we're living in a totally different world. Um, are you happy to be back in Girona? Is it bittersweet? Um, you know, you were in California where you were able to move freely outside and I know now in Spain you can as well, but, um, there was a time you couldn't. Um, are you, are you relieved and happy to be back in Spain and resuming sort of that life that you had, you had started? Yeah, I think it's always hard to leave home. And then something I know about myself and that I can just trust is that as soon as I've left home, once I am um, in my new place, I can make a life for myself and be happy. Um, I absolutely love being in Girona. I love living in Europe. It's totally different. And it's easy in ways that it isn't easy in the United States. And then it's difficult and challenging in ways that things might be easy in the US. And so it's kind of just I have to accept I'm, I'm basically living two different lives right now. And one of those lives is on pause. And um, I am now living my European life. And it's a great life to be living. And I'm really grateful to be here and really grateful to live where I live and be on the team I'm on and have the opportunities I have and continue this this journey. Um, but it's definitely an adjustment each time that I have to switch back and forth, for sure. Last question for you, Lee, and then we'll let you get back to your afternoon. You know, we, we asked this one to Taylor Wells, too, which is that Anamiek Van Vluten is flying right now. She is five for five in her uh, return to racing. And, you know, as someone who is in the Peloton and watching different strategies of different teams, like, what are the stra- – like, what strategy – could work against Anamique right now? Like what are teams trying out and what do you think could work as a way to to beat Anamique right now? I mean, all I can say is what teams are doing right now obviously isn't working. (laughs) Um, I think that in order to beat Anamique, she has proven she can win races in a variety of situations. And in order to get her on your back, her back foot, I think we have to race uh, with the least predictability possible you know like um if a team has numbers you ha- and there's only one of her you can put more pressure on her so um hopefully like we can get 
all teams on board and, and have some aggressive racing that, that might, you know, put her in a little more difficulty than, than otherwise she has experienced so far, but she's incredibly strong and has shown, I mean, the way that she closed that gap on Saturday was really, really impressive. So um, she's always going to be a really hard one to beat and it's a fun opportunity and challenge to try to make that happen. Well, Leah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Leah Thomas, everyone, um, all around strong woman, podium finisher at Stratabianca, Paul Koss, star rider, uh, calm under pressure, um, Northern California, strong woman, QOM holder. What other titles can we uh, just, just throw at Leah? You mean like very impressive. Olympic hopeful? We can put Olympic hopeful in there. We're going to be keeping our eyes on you because um, I, my spidey sense is telling me you're going to have a, a great 2020 season. So, Leah Thomas has been our guest on the Vel News Podcast. Thanks again, and we will link up with you next week. Oh, 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 o